Brethren, some time ago, a few years ago, when I was in business handling insurance claims for insurance companies, I, I attended a seminar or a workshop on workers' compensation claims, uh, where we had people there, for attorneys, uh, people in the service industry, registered nurses who handled, worked as case managers. We had some physicians and physical therapists and others, and some claims people like myself, and we were there to learn what we could to help people in those ways. Now, one of the speakers was a very well-known physician from Dallas, Texas, whose specialty was surgical intervention on workers injured on the job. Now, millions of these accidents occur every year. Some of you, I'm sure, have been involved in those sorts of things and have been injured on the job. Now, this doctor had a phenomenal record of returning people to gainful employment, much more than the typical individual. So everyone wanted to hear what he had to say, and they were not disappointed. He was an excellent speaker, and he gave valuable insights useful to people in that field. Now, beyond the technical aspects of what he covered, he said something that really got my attention. It grabbed my attention and stuck in my mind. This renowned physician said that in his practice, he treated people who were disabled, disallowed, disaffected, and disavowed. And then he went on to tell how he tried to help people in that way and some of the reasons he was successful in doing that. As I heard his words, it hit me that he had just described a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the mission of the church of God. If we look at history, ancient and modern history, if we examine the conditions under which major segments of the world's population live today, we see what the doctor described. We see people who are disabled, disallowed, disaffected, and disavowed. Look at the examples. They're all around us. Uh, We heard in the announcements about the situation in Haiti, which is just uh, an unbelievable thing until you see the pictures and realize the destruction and the difficulty that those people just a few miles from our shores have gone through. Of course, we know what goes on in the Middle East with the Israeli and the Palestinian conflict that's gone on for generations, and it's heating up with Hamas's involvement and with what's going on in Iran. And when you look at that situation on both sides, you have to say, who are the victims? Because both sides, you see, suffer in that situation. It's been quiet for a while, but you remember what happened in Bosnia between the Serbians and the Albanians. That's still going on. It doesn't get much publicity. It's not a a hostile thing that gets a lot of attention, but there's still problems in that area. They still haven't rebuilt. They still have people who are victims in that area. Certainly in many parts of Africa, and of course we have many brethren in Africa, in, in South Africa and other parts of Africa, you have racial unrest. You have tribal conflicts. You have uh, starvation, yes, even slavery, hard to imagine, in these modern times. So you have a lot of people in in that part of the world that go undergo these things. North Korea, of course, is known, and now it's making noises militarily and so on, but still, their people suffer there. They still have starvation in that country. People don't have enough to eat, and yet so much of their resources are put into armaments and that sort of thing, a very oppressed people. Of course, you know, and Pakistan and the conflict with India and then, of course, with Afghanistan on their borders. And right now, with all the flooding over there in Pakistan, hundreds of thousands of people are affected by all of that. So we see that's going on in those places. Uh, In the Philippines, where we have many brethren, there still is ethnic 
and religious conflict with the extremists that you have down there. And sometimes our people are affected by that. Uh, last year we had this devastating flooding in Manila and those areas. And, of course, we know it's going on in Mexico with the drug cartels. In this morning's paper, they talked about the bloodletting. It's a shooting war right across the border from us and in Colombia and all of those places. And, of course, uh, other places in the world that we might look at. Well, you might say, you know, that's tragic. Uh, but what does it have to do with us? We're doing okay. We're, we're doing okay here in the USA. Well, brethren, visit Veterans Administration Hospitals. As ministers, we get to visit those places, calling on our people and others and trying to comfort and anoint and do what we can do. Go to those VA hospitals. Visit the, the uh, University Medical Center where they do a lot of charity cases, this sort of thing, and see what you see in those places. Visit a children's hospital, a burn unit. Visit places where you see people being treated for birth defects and those sorts of things and see how you feel. Visit the prisons. We have people that we visit in prison and see the circumstances that they have. You know, go to the courthouse on Monday morning after the weekend and see the parade of humanity that comes in from all the shenanigans and all the things that have gone on over the weekend. And if that's not your cup of tea, just visit a nursing home. Visit a nursing home and visit the people there, and you'll see what I'm saying. Now, while most people are doing well, having food and clothing and shelter and hopefully good health, a large segment of our population does not fare well. And just as in Christ's time, multitudes of people know that they need help. They need healing. They need deliverance. Sometimes we see and we even make jokes about it in, in a way that just to break the tension, their marriage is in trouble. Nothing funny about that. And so people suffer in that area. We have schools in chaos. We have hardship in our nation when we have so many young men who've been off fighting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And some the tragedies just seem to dog some families. Now, hardship and difficulty, suffering. It's the story of mankind apart from God, cut off from the ways that bring peace and happiness and prosperity. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, brethren, we'll look at a number of scriptures today to illustrate the points that I want to make. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And that does describe, brethren, this situation. The, the, the creation groans. Verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And so we come here and we have the goal that God has set before us. We have the understanding that we have had our minds opened up to. And so we have that hope. But obviously, so many do not have that hope. Now, down through the ages, there were prophecies that God would send a Messiah to bring light to a gloomy, dark world and the circumstances that I've described here this afternoon. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll see a prophecy 
beautiful words in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 1. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, nations, you see, or tribes of Israel, a part of Israel, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them a light has shined. So we see this prophecy by the prophet Isaiah long ago. And then we see the fulfillment. Turn over to Isaiah 35. How will it be? What will it, what will it be like when it's fulfilled? Isaiah 35. We'll be looking at these scriptures in more detail, certainly during the Feast of Tabernacles, which is coming soon. And yet we want to look at them this afternoon and take encouragement from them. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands. What will this Messiah do when He comes? You see, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are faint-hearted, Be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open. What an incredible picture. Won't that be wonderful, brethren, when that happens? And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness as streams in the desert. And it goes on, and you can read the other things that talk about here when these prophecies, this prophecy is fulfilled. Something that we all look forward to. Something that's very real to us as we look forward to it. And yet, the world, for the most part, doesn't understand it. Doesn't have the vision. Doesn't have the hope. Now let's look over at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll see how this prophecy began to be fulfilled. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We'll start in verse 12, Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So there was a timing here. This was the time for Christ to begin. Verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which was by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Remember, Isaiah prophesied this, and here he is in that region, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Verse 17, and from that time, Jesus began to preach, And to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' ministry began, and this prophecy began to be fulfilled at that time. Now, brethren, how did he, Jesus Christ, deal with the people, the disabled, the disallowed, the disaffected, and the disavowed? And what should we as his people and his church be doing as we look around 
and see all of these things. Today, brethren, let's see what the Bible says about this subject. The title of my sermon this afternoon is Reaching Out to a Troubled World. Let's define the terms and understand what is meant by these words. First of all, let's look at disabled. You know what it means, but Webster will tell you it means to be incapacitated, unable to function. It can mean crippled physically or mentally or emotionally. And certainly it means not able to function in a normal way. Now, how did Jesus Christ deal with this problem? You know the answers, but let's look again this afternoon, brethren. We're in Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. Matthew 4. How did Jesus deal with this situation? How did he deal with the disabled? In verse 23 it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel or the good message of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics. And look at this, brethren, and he healed them. Brethren, he had compassion, and he had the power, and he used that to heal those people at that time. All of these different things that are described, and a lot of those things are extant in the world today. The world needs that, certainly now. Now, John, the baptizer, wondered, turn over to Matthew 11, he wondered when he heard about these things, what was going on, what did it mean? You see, John, who Jesus Christ said was the greatest of men did no miracles. And yet John, this great man who'd, who'd preached the uh, gospel of the repentance, the message of repentance and so on, in preparing for Christ, he wondered what was going on in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. And when John is talking about John the baptizer here, Jesus Christ's cousin, and when John had heard in prison, he'd been imprisoned, you see, about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. And said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, how did Jesus Christ answer him? What evidence would he give? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So clearly, as we see these things, we realize that Jesus Christ said, Go tell John what's happening. He will know. And I'm sure that he was thrilled and he did know what was going on. He did know that he was the Messiah because of the works that were done. Turn over a page to Matthew 12. Matthew 12. As we answer the question, How did Jesus Christ deal with the disabled? Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, you might think that's a reasonable question, and yet you have to understand that they were asking this in a way to try to trick him. They were looking for a way to to try to make Jesus look bad. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? So they didn't have a right attitude. 
And then he, Jesus, said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Now, he knew these people. They weren't going to lose any money. You see, they were going to take care of their property. How much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Certainly, brethren, there's a benchmark for us when we ask ourselves, is, is it, should I be doing this on the Sabbath? It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus Christ said. Look at verse 13. Then he said to the man in front of all of them, you see, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other. I'm sure that they, there were gasps in the room. An incredible miracle. This man that they knew who had a crippled hand and it's, it's healed, it's restored as whole as the other, right? In front of them. And what was the reaction? Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. They didn't rejoice. This wasn't working out the way they wanted it to, you see. This didn't fit their paradigm. And yet, they went out then, you see, to try to destroy him. Verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him. Obviously, people were excited. The word went through the community. Wherever he was, there were crowds. A great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. Notice that, brethren, all of them. No one went away disappointed. Their disabilities were taken away. They were healed. Turn over, brethren, to Luke chapter 10 as we consider these things. How did Jesus Christ deal with the disabled? Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Now, here we see an exciting development in the work at that time in Luke chapter 10. In verse 1 it says, After these things the Lord appointed seventy others also, and sent them two by two before His face into every city and place where He Himself was about to go. So this were, these were advanced teams, you see, going out preparing for where Christ was going to go, two by two, 35 teams of two people. And you can read in verses 2 through 8, he, gives, he give, gave them all kinds of detailed instructions about how they were to prepare, uh, what they could expect, how they should finance their, their trip, and where they should go and where they should not go. You see, all these instructions so, uh, about what they should do. But then look at verse 9. He told those 70, he said, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. He said, heal these people. And so they went out on their journey. How did it turn out? How did it turn out? Look at verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy. With joy. They were excited. They were enthusiastic saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. In your name. It seems they were surprised at how successful they were. God had given them the power. And they were successful. They were very excited about it. And brethren, many such accounts are recorded in the Scripture. Now, Jesus said that that wasn't going to be all of it, though. There was going to be more. Turn over to John 14. John 14. As we consider how Jesus Christ dealt with the disabled. John 14, verse 12. These are 
passages of, of Scripture that we read during the Passover season, but certainly they apply today as well. John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus said, Most assuredly, He's saying, you can count on this. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Greater works. Hard to imagine that there would be greater works. The things that had happened were just exciting and and miraculous, and people were healed. And yet he said, greater works. Brethren, has that happened? Did that happen? Turn over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We see now that on this, just on that day of Pentecost when the church began, the Holy Spirit was given. Acts chapter 3, verse 2. We pick up the story here. Acts chapter 3, verse 2. Answering the question, has, has greater works than those that Christ did and the, the, the disciples back there, apostles, had they been done? Verse 2, it says, And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. So you have this mental image of this man who's been crippled since birth. And every day, his occupation, his livelihood was to be at the temple and to ask for alms, to, to, to be a beggar, you see, uh, at the temple. Verse 3, who seeing Peter, here's this poor crippled man, who seeing Peter and John asked to, uh, about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So I'm sure the man immediately turned to them, you see. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. He would have been happy with a shekel. <laughs> he would have been happy with, you know, whatever little bit that they would give him. Verse 6, Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And for a moment, it must have flashed through his mind. Have you lost your mind? <laughs> you know, why do you think I'm sitting here? I can't walk. And he took him by the right hand. And lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Incredible. So he, this crippled man, leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I'm sure it was quite a spectacle. Quite an exciting time for people who had seen this man sitting at the gate just a few minutes before. Now he's up and around and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Here's a man lame from birth. Obviously, a great miracle had occurred. Here in Acts, just go right on in chapter 5. Chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Look at verse 12. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Not a few. But many, not a rare thing, but many, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Then drop down to verse 15. Let's start in verse 14. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Verse 15, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter 
passing by might fall on some of them. Incredible. They were wanting to be healed in, in, in that way. So just that the shadow of Peter might fall on them. Verse 16, also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem. So the whole metropolitan area out in the, in the, uh, the surrounding towns and so on, the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits. And look at this, brethren, and they were all healed. Think about that. You know, we long to have those healings today. And look back there at that time. They were all healed. Many, many were healed. Turn over a page to Acts chapter 8. The question I asked was, have these things that Jesus Christ said were going to happen, have they happened? Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Here we see an account of Philip. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed. Think of that. Now they would be free of that evil influence that tormented them, maybe maybe for their whole lives. And many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, maybe because of accidents or disease or some other problem, maybe malnutrition, who knows, but it says they were paralyzed and lame. They were healed. And so it says in verse 8, there was great joy in that city because many, many were healed. Now, certainly, brethren, we have instruction today. Turn over to James chapter 5. Here's a scripture that all of you know, probably by heart, and yet we should look at it as we discuss this subject. What is our instruction today? Let's look at the book of James, written by the Lord's brother. James chapter 5. James chapter 5, verse 13. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? And I'm sure the answer today right here in this room is yes. Various maladies and difficulties, things that that people have. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Heard some great cheerful singing a while ago. You see, we enjoyed that. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another. We are admonished to do that often, brethren, and I'm sure that you do pray for one another. That you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So, brethren, we certainly look forward to to having more and more healings. We do have some. We had one read in the announcements today, and that's a wonderful thing. But we also know that people sometimes are not healed. We have had fasts. We've tried to draw close to God. We ask Him to increase our faith so that we can have more of those healings. Now, will all be healed in this life? Probably not. Probably not. But based on the clear statements in prophecy, brethren, all will be healed in the kingdom. And I think before that time, when Jesus Christ is ready, when it is His time, brethren, He will give us the gifts that He gave, those 70 as they went out, and the apostles as they went out, and Philip as he went out. 
when it's his time, we will see miraculous healings abundantly. Now, you know, when that happens, there will be persecution. You know, when that happens, God will be making a statement to this world that these are my people and look at what they're doing. And when he is ready, when he is ready, it will happen. We don't know when that will be, but it will happen. We do know that all will be healed in the kingdom. Look at Revelation 21. Let's see how it all turns out, what we look forward to. Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. A time when the new Jerusalem will come, you see. And then verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Look at verse 4, brethren. This is the time that we all look forward to. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Think about that, brethren. A time when there is no reason to weep, except maybe for joy. There is no reason to weep because of sorrow and pain, the loss of a loved one, those sorts of things. The former things, those sorts of things have passed away. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. He's saying, you can take this to the bank. This is going to happen. It may seem far-fetched. It may seem unreal because we see the real world around us, the, the suffering world. But there's going to come a time when all these things are going to happen. He says, these words are true and faithful. Brethren, there will be no disabled in the kingdom. Let's look at the second thing that the doctor talked about that day when I heard him. He talked about those that were disallowed. What does it mean, disallowed? It means to prevent or to prohibit. It means to restrain or to hamper. It means to refuse to allow, to refuse to accept. It's talking about discrimination. Now, many of the problems in the world, wherever you look, are the result of discrimination based on race, based on ethnic origin, based on any number of things that we'll look at. So that sort of thing is when, when that happens, someone is disallowed. They're not allowed, you see, to do what they should be able to do. Now, God anticipated this problem and gave in specific instructions on how to handle it. Turn back to Exodus. Exodus uh, chapter 12. Exodus 12. Going back in history, anciently, God gave instructions because he knew mankind. He knew that they needed instruction on just this sort of thing. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 48. He says, And when a stranger dwells with you, this would be someone from another land, could be just a different culture, but it could be a different race, it could be that's whatever it was, a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then let him come near and keep it, for he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law, verse 49, one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Now what is God saying? The stranger, the foreigner, had to obey the rules. 
They had to do the things they were supposed to do. But once they did, there was one law. There was no discrimination. They were to be treated like one of the uh, one of Israel at that point. So he makes it plain that that was the case. One law. Turn over a few pages to Exodus 22. God told them something here. You know, as human beings, we tend to forget. We forget the difficulty sometimes. We forget the blessings. We tend to forget. And so Jesus, or God in here, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, uh, gave instruction. Exodus 22, verse 21. It's written here, You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God wanted them to never forget that they had been slaves, that they had been oppressed, that they had been foreigners in a land, you see, and had been mistreated. And so he recorded this, that they would never forget that they had been oppressed, and therefore they should not oppress others who were strangers among them. Now, turn over a few more pages to Leviticus 19, just hurriedly looking at these uh, principles, this instruction that we should do our best to apply today. It's a different time, a different place, and yet the principles are the same. Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 33. We see the statutes and the judgments. Leviticus 19, verse 33. It says, If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. And I might add her. Let's make this politically correct. (laughs) You know, you shall not mistreat him. I mean, there's no misunderstanding this, brethren. Look at verse 34. The stranger who dwells among you shall be as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the eternal, your God. This is very, very plain instruction. And that God knew that it would be difficult for them because it's in human nature if someone's different to, to treat them differently. And that was not to be the case, not in Israel and certainly not in the church of God. Turn over a few pages to Deuteronomy 10, and we see just another facet of this same thing. Deuteronomy 10, a little bit of another layer, as it were, on top of this that helps us to understand what our attitude should be toward the stranger, toward the people who are among us. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. It says, For the eternal your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and nor takes a bribe. So clearly God, we know throughout the Scriptures, shows no partiality. Look at verse 18. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger giving him food and clothing. Look at verse 19. Here's the additional facet. Not only do we tolerate the stranger, in verse 19 it says, Therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Not just tolerate, but to love them, to have genuine concern for them. That's what the Scriptures said. Over in uh, Deuteronomy 16, we're all preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's look at some instruction regarding the feast here. And it it includes the stranger. Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16. It's here talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 16, verse 11. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter. You know, we love to have our families together at the feast. 
as I'm looking for places and venues for the Feast of Tabernacles, I always explain, this is a family thing. We bring our families, and we're there for eight days. And people are just amazed at that, you know. Well, do you take your kids out of school? And we said, yes, we do. And uh, Because it's a family time. It goes on and says, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is with you in your gates, the stranger, you see, the stranger who might normally be discriminated against, and the fatherless and the widow who are among you at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So we're to remember them at feast time. Look at verse 14. And you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. So clearly, brethren, we are to to take care of them even at the feast time. Now, what about employment practices? Turn over a few pages to Deuteronomy 24. You know, the Bible is a very practical book. And most of us work for a living and we'd have our enterprise, our farm, our business, our job. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14, says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. We are to be fair to our employees. We are to certainly treat them well, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. So we are not to oppress or discriminate in employment practices. Not at all. Look down at verse 17. You shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. And then it goes on in these next verses and talks about something that we can learn from, and that is to provide for the poor. When you reap your harvest in your field, Now, most of you don't farm, but there was a time when everybody farmed. And there are principles here that we can put into whatever field we're in, whatever field of endeavor. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. In other words, leave some. It shall be for the stranger for the fatherless and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Now, we see when we look at this, we are to make provision for the poor. Notice they had their part to do. They had to go gather it. (laughs) You don't have to deliver it to the door. (laughs) But leave something for them. Make provision for the poor. That's what God said. And certainly, as we see, brethren, we're not to leave anyone out. Look at Deuteronomy 31. As we make the point about the disallowed. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12. Looking at these wonderful scriptures that were written so long ago and so relevant to us today. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12. Now, this is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a wonderful verse. It says, Gather the people together. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12. Gather the people together, men and women and the little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the eternal your God and to carefully observe all the words of this law. We do all come together as families. We bring the little children to services. Why? We're not to leave anyone out. 
And brethren, as we live our lives, our Christian lives, we should certainly strive to leave no one out. Turn over to one of the minor prophets. Turn over to Zechariah. You know, human beings are sometimes schemers. Sometimes we have schemes that can cause us difficulty. Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 9. Let's start in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. So this wasn't Zechariah's personal opinion. This is what God told him to write. Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice. You know, in this country today, we have the best justice money can buy. It's really really not who's right. It's who's got the best legal team. We see a a scenario like that playing out in the courts here in Mecklenburg County right now. It's not about who's guilty. It's about who has the best team of of, uh, lawyers. Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless the alien, or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. It's amazing how many scams there are today. You turn on your computer each day and you're bound to get two or three uh, solicitations or, or offers on things that are, not, that are not legitimate. And you have to be careful about who you do business with and all of these things. You have to do due diligence. Why? Because there are people out there that plan evil in their hearts. But God says to his people, Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. We are not to scheme against those who are less blessed than we are, brethren. Now, the teaching in the New Testament is also very plain. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We'll see what Paul had to say to the church in Galatia at that long time ago. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Let's start in verse 26. Galatians 3, verse 26. For all, for you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. See, that was once a, a very... Uh, distinction. There was a, a very a, a dividing. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Talking about spiritual things, you see. For you are all one in Christ. For if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Brethren, we are all heirs. We are all on equal footing before God on a spiritual level. I hope we can see that. And practice that because that's what's pleasing to God. And he's recorded it for us here. Now, James, again, the Lord's brother. I always think about this, what it must have been like growing up as the brother of Jesus Christ. No pressure, you know, (laughs) to have the perfect. I had a brother. He wasn't perfect. I can tell you. And he knew that I wasn't perfect. (laughs) And we delighted in getting each other in trouble. Um, He ran over me in the car one time and broke my leg. And he said it was an accident, but obviously, different relationship here, I'm sure, with James. James chapter 2. James chapter 2 talks about another facet about not discriminating against anyone. Let's, let's look at it here. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, so it's talking here to 
to people in the church. It's talking to people in God's church. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He's talking about now putting this impartial attitude into practice. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should come also a poor in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. I mean, you give him the comfortable chair, <laughs> the upholstered chair, as it were. <clears throat> you sit here, um, and then you say to, in the good place, and you say to the poor man, you, you stand there, or you sit at my footstool. In other words, not a choice seat, it were, as it were. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James knew, and brethren, we should know, this can be a tendency. This is a human tendency. And he goes on and says, listen, my beloved brethren. He says, pay attention. You need to know this. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. And if you look around, brethren, you'll see God is mostly called people who do not have great wealth. You don't see many captains of industry. You don't see many senators and governors. You see, they're not who God is working with at this time. He says, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the promise of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you in the courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name of which you are called? If you really fulfill the law according the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. So it's serious business, brethren, and we don't want to be sinners. If you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law, the law of God, as transgressors. So, brethren, we should not discriminate against the poor. It happens often, and we should certainly try to avoid that. Our tendency as human beings is to honor the wealthy. We tend to look at people about how they dress and what they drive and where they live, and none of those things are wrong. But it's not, you see, something that we should put great store in as far as judging someone. We should not discriminate Against the poor. Now, look at uh, verse 15. James 2, verse 15. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where, this is where he tells us how we should live. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? James is saying that talk is cheap. You know, he's, you know, words are, are easy. And yet what he says here is that we should give them the things that they need. And so, Berlin, I know that you do. And you know, we have uh, a very active group here that's always looking out for each other's welfare. And that's good. That's pleasing to God. And so we should not be busybodies, but we should be aware of needs of our brothers and sisters and help them when they need help. Now, Peter came to understand this after a vision in Acts chapter 10. I won't turn there. You know the story well where he, God showed him that he should not call any man common or unclean. And that was a time when the gospel was opened up to the Gentiles. What a wonderful time that it was. And certainly Paul said in Romans 2, verse 11, again, I'll just quote it for you. He says, there's no partiality with God. None. 
And brethren, that's hard because we grow up in a society that is filled with that sort of thing. So we spend a lifetime overcoming it. But we definitely should do that. Now, let's turn over uh, to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, as we consider the disallowed. Luke 14. Again, we read these verses particularly around the Passover. Luke 14, verse 12. Jesus Christ's words, Then He said, also said to him who invited him, here's an important lesson He was giving there, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors. Now, it's certainly not wrong to have your friends and your neighbors, poor or rich, <laughs> but for, for dinner. But if that's all you do, you see, if you don't include the others, you have a problem. Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Verse 13, this is for us, brethren. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, brethren, we shouldn't have a selfish motive, but as we look at this, God says if we do that, if we get out of our comfort zone, if we invite people over who we may not have a lot in common with, who certainly can't pay us back, it says you will be blessed. And I think you'll be blessed in this life and certainly in the resurrection, as it said. Brother, we could look at many others, but you grasp the lesson. As God's people, we are to allow and to include the disallowed. Let's look at the next one, brother, the third one, the disaffected. The disaffected. Now, that means to be estranged, no longer friendly. Uh, the discontented. The disloyal. Uh, how rare is loyalty in the society that we live in today? Now let's turn back to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. Now here we have a message to false shepherds. Ezekiel 34. Now, as we read these words, brethren, think about what was going on in Jesus Christ's time. There were false shepherds, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others. Certainly we know, brethren, in our time today, you look at God's people are scattered. How sad is that? And so many of them are in this group and that group, and many are misled. And certainly in days to come, we may see a problem of false shepherds. In Ezekiel 34, we have a message to false shepherds. Look at verse 4. Let's look at verse 2 and set the stage. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the eternal God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Look at verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty, you have ruled them. An incredible thing. Verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep, God calls them, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered 
over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. That was a tragic situation, brethren. And certainly this describes the disaffected. This decides those who are uh, estranged and scattered, you see. Now, we see, brethren, that God has not forgotten them. The shepherds may have. We may see that they'll have to answer for that. But God has not forgotten them. Look at verse 11. Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the eternal God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Brethren, you might ask yourself why you're here today. Because God sought you out. (laughs) God does the calling. And He has brought you here. Verse 12, As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy, dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them to their own land, looking at a future time. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and in the valleys and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture. It's an analogy. It's talking certainly physically, but also spiritually. I will feed them in good pasture. And their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. And there they shall lie down in good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord. Look at verse 16. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them with my judgment. So, brethren, God has not forgotten his sheep. And he will work through them, work for them, and draw them to him. Now, we have several examples in the New Testament. Let's go there. Turn over to Luke chapter 19. What was Christ's concern? Luke 19, as we talk about the disaffected, those who are estranged, Luke 19, verse 1. Luke 19. It's a wonderful story here. Very colorful when you think about what it must have been like. Luke 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, the tax collectors were a very hated group. You see, they were agents of the Romans, and uh, they... Uh, took the, the money and they took more than they needed. He was obviously very good at it. It says he was rich, you see. And he sought to see who Jesus was. Big commotion, you see. But he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. As we would say today, he was vertically challenged. <laughs> so he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, And I'm sure Zacchaeus probably said, oh, no, he's looking my way. (laughs) He said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they, that is the establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders you see, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And I'm sure they just spit the words out, you see. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, and you know he had, you see, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, 
because he is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Do you see that, brethren? Jesus Christ was concerned for the lost. People that needed salvation, who needed to turn around, who needed to change their ways. And he said to him that day that you have, your salvation had come to his house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. Brethren, if Christ was concerned about those people, so should we be. And we are. You realize, of course, that our, our broadcast that goes out around the world is bringing a message of hope and light to those people. Who is hearing that message? All of our literature, all of those things, the special presentations that we're doing. This is what we are we're showing concern for the lost and people who need the message that we have. And you are all a part of that. And I hope you realize how important that is and how pleasing that is to God. Turn over to Mark chapter 2. Let's see another incident of how Jesus Christ worked with sinners. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. It says in verse 14, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors, must have been a lucrative field because there were a lot of them. <laughs> Maybe they had territories. You know, you know, this is my area and this is your area, and don't you be collecting taxes in my area. You see, I'm thinking that was because there were many of them. And sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, notice they didn't say it to Jesus. They didn't have the courage. But they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? They were incredulous. But when Jesus heard it, verse 17, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus Christ said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Brethren, Jesus Christ works with sinners. And so do we. And so do we. Now, let's look over a page or two to back to Luke 15. Here, let's look at some, some parables that I think uh, uh, that talk about things that are lost. Very colorful stories. But they make a point that we can all that we should all learn. Luke 15. Here we see that same group of people that Jesus often worked with in Luke 15. Verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. You see, they were willing to listen. I think they realized they had a problem. Maybe they had pangs of conscience. Certainly God was working with them. And they drew near to him. And then look down at verse 4. Jesus said, What man of you? Having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which was lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So clearly he was showing the importance of, and how they rejoiced. These were business people, and they didn't want to lose a dime. <laughs> you see, and so he, he was making that point with them. Verse 7, I say to you likewise that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons 
who need no repentance. So there's great joy in heaven when one person comes to repentance. And brethren, when we have a baptism here and there, sometimes more than one, but in various places, the angels in heaven rejoice for another person, another sinner who has come to repentance. It's a cause for much joy when the lost sheep returns. Let's go right on in verse 8 here. Or what woman, notice the women are not left out here, ladies. You get to make a good point, okay? And what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? She's hard at work looking for what is lost. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me. I have found the peace which I lost. And Jesus said, Likewise, I say to you, he's made this point, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, brethren, angels are happy over one person who changes to go the right way. And I know that all of you are as well. When that happens and we have a group of people at the baptism, usually people break into applause. It's a very joyous time, and we rejoice over that happening. Now, I won't read verses 11 through 32. It's the, I hope you'll read it and ponder it. It's the story of the lost son, the wasteful son, who took his inheritance and squandered it. And yet, when he came back, he was welcomed by his father. Now, <clears throat> brethren, uh, let's look at one other thing. Let's, let's look at James again, James, the Lord's brother. Here's something for all of us, something that might impact any one of you. James chapter 5, James chapter 5, verse 19. James chapter 5, verse 19. James says, brethren, again, talking to uh, the church, if anyone among you wanders, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, does that happen? It does happen. We used to have large groups of people. Today we have smaller groups. We have a very large congregation here, but in most of our areas it's small. And it happens here and in other places. Sometimes people lose their way. They wander from the truth. He says, and if and someone turns them back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. And then there's a bonus. We all love a bonus. And cover a multitude of sins. So brethren... Uh, certainly, it's talking about saving someone from the second death. And then the bonus, of course, is we get the blessings. Brethren, God is concerned for the disaffected, and so should we be. Brethren, let's look at the last group that this famous doctor that I heard talked about, and that was the disavowed. The disavowed. Now, what is that? That is to disclaim knowledge or belief, to repudiate, to renounce. To revoke. Now, from our perspective, it's one who's denied the faith, who was a part of the church, and who now disputes and challenges or gainsays the truth, turns against the truth. And we know that that happens. We know that that happens. Now, this attitude has been a problem for God's people down through time. You know, to start strong, then waver, then begin to murmur and challenge, and then become bitter. It happens. It happens. Turn back to uh, Numbers chapter 14. We'll take a quick look there. Not go into a lot of depth, but just to make the point. Here the children of Israel had so much to be thankful for, and they hadn't gone very far until they began to murmur. 
Numbers 14, verse 26. Numbers 14, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. So here they were with all the blessings, all the miracles, all that God had done for them, and uh, they were rebelling. You know it over and over, complaining and questioning. And certainly we know that God is not pleased with that. Now, let's turn over to Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. We'll give you the message from Malachi. That's a joke. There's a little book out there about the message from Malachi, but this is a different, this is the real one. The message from Malachi, as we talk about the disavowed, the prophet wrote, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, saying, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So setting the stage here, you see, the, the God's message, and we'll see what it is as we look, look at verse 5. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers meaning those who obviously deal in the occult, but also illicit drugs, that sort of thing, against adulterers, an incredible problem in the world today, against perjurers. Sometimes we think when we listen to politicians that no one tells the truth anymore. Against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien. Why? Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. But what does God want us to do? He says, verse 7, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. God says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Brethren, that's God's message to those who are disavowed. Return. Return. That's what he would like to happen. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus had to deal with this attitude a great deal. Turn over to Matthew 12 as we hurry along. Matthew 12. We'll see how Jesus Christ dealt with this. Matthew 12. Verse 24. Matthew 12, verse 24. Jesus knew their thoughts. Let's see. Let's start here. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, verse 24, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided. How then shall his kingdom stand? Clearly, they were trying to scatter the people, as it were. He says, going on, verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Brethren, the disavowed scatter God's people. And we want to avoid that, obviously. And then, of course, we see the sin that will not be forgiven. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. So obviously, unrepented sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit 
is a problem, a sin that won't be forgiven. Now, Peter had to deal with this as well. Look at Acts chapter 8. Very fascinating story. I'll let you read it on your own time, but let's just look at it here for a moment. Acts chapter 8. Here we find Peter dealing with Simon Magus. Very interesting story. Acts chapter 8. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that Simon Magus saw the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also. And then Peter had the perfect squelch. In verse 20, he said, uh, Your money perish with you. <laughs> now, that's a pretty strong denial. And then let's drop down to verse 22. Repent, therefore, Peter said to him, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Can you see that, brethren? Clearly, bitterness can poison, and iniquity can imprison you. So obviously, we want to avoid that attitude, and the disavowed have a problem with that. We are cautioned against that over and over. Obviously, brethren, the key is to have a repentant attitude at all times, an attitude of being willing to obey God in all things and to seek His will and not our own. I'd like you to turn over to Second Peter for my last scripture, the very last one, probably on your very last page of paper. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter wrote, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Brethren, my, my approach this afternoon has been as a reminder. You know all these things. But it's to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. And we've looked at a lot of those today. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. People are saying that today. Ah, you people have been saying that for 50 years. And yet, you see, that was predicted even here. Look at verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That's hard for us to grasp, but that's God's viewpoint. That's His approach. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all, even the disavowed, you see, should come to repentance. And then look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in grace, without spot and blameless. Brethren, God is patient, and so should we be. Brethren, as we live our lives each day, Remember the disabled and help them in whatever way you can. Accept the disallowed and guard against discrimination or partiality. Reach out to the disaffected. They may respond and return. Pray for the disavowed that God will be merciful and grant them repentance 
for you see their salvation depends upon it. Brethren, if you do these things, God will know that you have concern for others and that you love your neighbor as yourself.